Well, if you guys have your Bibles with you this morning, and you are so good, then turn in them to 2 Kings chapter 7, where we're going to look today at a story um, that I'm going to tell you on the front end is a little more illustrative of my life than I find all that comfortable, frankly. And I think you might find a few parallels with yourself as well. But not only do I think that it illustrates kind of how we live, how we think, what we do, but I think it also illustrates so much of what we've been talking about the past three weeks as we've been on this journey that we're wrapping up today that we're calling Leverage Your Life and which, as I've said every week, and I'm going to say it again now, is really not a journey about your time and it's really not a journey about your talents and it's really not a journey about your treasure. But it does absorb all those things. It's a journey about following Christ. We've been saying to leverage your life is to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus is to leverage your life. Or to use the metaphor for the last time, it is to gather up consciously, willfully, intentionally, knowingly all the different components of your life. Time, talent, and treasure, just three different categories and ways of describing things. Everything else as well. And it is to put it into a great big metaphorical bag, if you will, that your Savior and your Lord, and that is a key concept running through everything that we've talked about. In Christ Jesus, we gain not just a Savior, we gain a Lord who comes claiming not merely our sin. He comes to claim us. And that's a good thing. That's a wondrous thing. That's a glorious thing. That's an eternally life-changing kind of thing. So the idea is, well, then put it all into the bag, and then once you get it all into the bag, get into the bag yourself, close the bag up over your head, tie it off with a nice shiny bow, hop it on over to the feet of Christ, and then deposit it there joyfully, because that's what it produces in our hearts and lives. Deposit it there joyfully at the feet of Christ. Turn it all over to Him, and then get up every single day thereafter. And on a moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year basis, take every one of those desires that will inevitably well up in your heart and in mine, in which we're tempted to untie the bow, to get out of the bag, and to start taking back things that we've already surrendered to the Lord, and crucify them to the cross. Put them to death, that you might live unto Him, that you might follow him wherever it is that he leads you to go and that you might do then with your life whatever it is that he might want you to do with that life and to do it as an act of worship in response to the gospel. That's it. That's what we've been talking about. And we've been coming around this idea and going time and talent and treasure. Hey, guess what? It came from God. It belongs to God. It's to be used primarily for God. And what does he tell us to do with it? Well, more than anything else, he says to be generous with it, to give your life away as he directs for us to do, okay? So to that end, I want to bring this journey to a close this morning by looking at the story in 2 Kings chapter 7, but I need to give you a little background. It takes place in about 850 BC, and I know you're thinking, so, well, that actually matters. Historically, in the history of the nation of Israel, at that time, it was divided into two completely different kingdoms. So you had the southern kingdom and you had the northern kingdom. And the southern kingdom had its own capital city. That was the city of Jerusalem and had its own king. The northern kingdom had its own capital city. That's where the story takes place. It was called Samaria and it had its own king and he was a bad king. And here's how you know that he was a bad king. It had nothing to do with what the economy was like. It had nothing to do with how much land he acquired or lost. It had nothing to do with how many cities he built or destroyed. 
It had everything to do with whether he was taking his people and bringing them closer to God or pulling them away. And he was pulling them away. And so what happens in this story is that God does to this northern kingdom, to this king, to this capital city, what he does all the way throughout the New Testament, or the Old Testament, rather, you see time and again, time and again, when God's people pull away from him, forsake him, and abandon him, what does he do? What's the tactic? He raises up their enemies against them and empowers them against them so that they, through suffering, might wake up, might recognize their great need for him, and might turn and repent. And that's exactly what happens in this story. God raises up the Syrians in this case, and the Syrians gather up their vast, huge, massive army, and they cross over into the northern territory, the northern kingdom of what was the nation of Israel at that time, and they start to sweep through the northern kingdom and a beeline for the capital city. They're going to deal with the king and his city. And what happens is that all of these people in the outlying villages and towns and this whole big territory, as they get wind of the fact that this big army has come in their direction, instead of fleeing to the right or to the left to get out of the pathway of this army that's heading directly for the city of Samaria, they run ahead of the army to the destination of the army, which is the city of Samaria. And you got to go, why in the world would they do that? Well, because it was the city of their king and it had the greatest walls in the whole of the northern kingdom. The walls were thought to be impregnable. And so to their mind of thinking, I mean, they're they're thinking, wow, this is the safest place they can possibly be. And in one sense, at least it was. But not if you were the Syrians and were patient. Think about it. Where were the farms? Where were the lands? Where were the storehouses? You follow? All of these people who didn't normally live within the city gather in the city and flee to its safety, and this population of the city swells many times over, which is great for like a weekend. But at some point, the restaurants start running out of food. Get the idea? And so the Syrians roll in, and they just set up their camp outside of the walls of the city of Samaria. Instead of dashing themselves to death against the impregnable walls, they just decide to be patient. They set up their camps. They put their guards around the city. They cut off all the supply lines. They lay up in a hammock, and they wait for the people in the city to starve. And a famine sets in in this city, and this provides to us some of the most desperate pages in all of the Bible. We read, for example, that these people were purchasing donkeys' heads for 80 shekels of silver for dinner. Now, just think about that. What's for dinner? Donkeys' heads do. That's it, man. What part of the donkey do you think I'm eating right now? I'm going temporal lobe. I mean, it's disgusting. They're paying exorbitant amounts of money for that. Two quarts of dove's dung. Do you know what that is? That's what the bird leaves behind when he flies away from your windowsill. Two quarts of that, five shekels of silver. There is a story in this context of a mother of a young child who comes to the king with a complaint against another mother with a young child. And here's her complaint. 
O king, this other woman came to me with her infant son, and she said, I want to make a deal with you, and here's the deal. Let's take your infant son and cook and eat him today, and then we'll take my infant son and cook and eat him tomorrow. So we cooked and ate my son, O king, and now this other woman has hid her son away. You need to feel the desperation. The king is so blown away by that that he literally grabs his robes. He's standing on the wall of the city in front of all of his people and he rips his clothes in two and it's revealed to the public at that point that beneath his royal robes he's wearing what's called sackcloth. Think of like a burlap bag. It's uncomfortable on purpose. It was a sign in those days of repentance, which is what the Lord's been looking for, isn't it? And he immediately makes an appointment to go see the prophet Elisha. Because even though he doesn't like Elisha, he's humble enough now to receive a word from the Lord. That's where we pick up the story, 2 Kings 7, beginning in verse 1. Here's the word that Elisha gave him. He says, but Elisha said to the king, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, notwithstanding the fact that food is so scarce in your city today that you're paying 80 shekels of silver for donkey's head stew. Five shekels for a McDove's dung sandwich. Cannibalizing your own children. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Tomorrow, about this time, so like in 24 hours, notice the change. A sia, that's just a unit of measurement. You know, we would say like a pint or something. A sia of what? Donkey's heads? Dove's dung? No, 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 of good food. A sea of fine flour shall be sold for how much? Next to nothing. A shekel, like this is below market rates when the market is good. Tomorrow about this time, here's the word of the Lord for you, a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. What he's saying is, by this time tomorrow, not only will you guys be able to give up your outrageously expensive diet of donkey's head, dove's dung, and whatever else you might be finding and scraping off windowsills to eat, but there's going to be so much food in this city that really good stuff is going to be sold for next to nothing. Now that's good news, isn't it? But then we read this. It says in verse 2, Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned, so the right-hand man of the king, said to the man of God, he speaks up, he's heard the news, and listen to what he says. He says, If the Lord himself should make what? Because we heard this exact same phrase two weeks ago when we talked about level one giving, which is tithing. He says, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, there it is, could this thing be? Wow. Keep your eye on that guy for a minute. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about level one giving, which again is tithing, and and we heard God speak through the prophet Malachi. What did he say? He said, test me, right? Do you remember that? Test me in this thing called tithing, he said, and see, because here's the test, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. The windows of heaven exist, but notice who experiences the blessing. It's poignant. It says, then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, okay, look, 
If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? He's saying, listen, here, here's the deal. I, I, you know, I hear what you're saying and everything, but that's ridiculous. I mean, please, he does not have an imagination by which he can conceive of such a great turnaround, of such a great provision. But God is not limited to our imagination. And listen to what the prophet says. Elisha says this, you shall see it, he says to this guy. So you're going to see it with your own eyes, he says. God is going to open the windows and he's going to pour out the blessing. You're going to get to see that, but you shall not eat of it. What is he saying? He's saying the windows of heaven exist, but they exist for those of us who know and believe the word of God in such a way that it actually shows up in our life. Let me give you an example. One of the ladies in my community group, I'm really proud of her, is a chiropractor. And she's really cool, and we've gotten to know each other real well. And, and uh, she recently got married, and, and her husband lives over here on the east side of Fort Lauderdale, and she was living out in Davie, and she had her practice out in Davie. So she decided, I'm going to move my whole practice, everything, over here since now I'm living over here. So she rented a new space, and she's in this time of transition. And you can imagine, you know, some of her clients probably are loyal enough to come all the way from Davie, all the way to, like, commercial and federal and some of them probably aren't. And so it's an expensive time. In a lot of different ways, it's a trying time. And, you know, as the Lord would have it, it's also a time when we're talking about stuff like this. And she said, you know, I just, I felt like God was saying, hey, it's time for you to tithe. And she thought, oh, good grief. Can you pick a worse time than now? But she did it. So she writes her tithe check. She brings it as an act of worship. She gives it to the Lord. And the next week, her rent comes due, and she looks, and she doesn't have enough money to pay for it. So she's panicking, right? She's thinking, good grief, now what am I going to do? She goes to the mailbox, and there's a check in the mail from an insurance company, which she sees as a miracle, and here's why. She doesn't take money from insurance companies. She made that a policy way back when, when she realized it's an administrative nightmare, and they pay nickels and dimes on the dollars, so it just doesn't work for me. She's told all her patients, look, you can't, you know, I'm not going to bill your insurance company, but a couple of months ago, a lady came to her and was kind of desperate, I guess, and said, look, I don't have the money to pay you. Would you just please give it a shot? Make one-time exception for me. So she said she wrote the bill by hand, like that's going to work. And mailed it in and forgot about it, like it's an exercise in futility. So she pays her tithe, right? And then she, her rent comes due, brand new facility. She's going, oh man, I'm not going to be able to pay this this month. She goes to the mailbox and the insurance company paid 90% of her handwritten claim. And it was more than enough to pay for her rent. Like she's blown away coming to me talking about windows in heaven. And I was rejoicing for her, but I was mourning to some degree for me and for you, not just with regard to promises regarding money. I just wonder how many times like that where it's a God moment and God shows up in this case dealing with dollars and cents in a quantifiable, undeniable way that we miss because we're like the captain on whom, whose arm the king rested, you see? I don't want to miss those moments. So Elisha said to this skeptical right-hand man of the king, he says, look, here, here's the deal. You're going to see it with your own eyes, but it's going to be in the lives of other people, not yours. You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And what a thing for this guy to miss out on. 
And then immediately we read this. It says, now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And as it turns out, like they're sitting there going, what are we going to do? I mean, they're trying to figure out what their options are. They are the most reasonable people, by the way, in this whole story. Their logic prevails above the logic of everyone else in the story. So they're sitting around, and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die if we say, and this is option number one, let's enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. So not a good option. Cross that one off. And if we sit here, that's option number two, and do nothing is the point, well, then we'll die also. Again, not a good option. Cross that one off. So here's what they conclude. So now, option three, come. And let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. Let's leave the city. Let's leave the protection of the walls. Let's go out to our enemies and surrender. We'll give ourselves to them. And if they spare our lives. Now, what is the likelihood of that exactly? I mean, the likelihood would probably be slim even if they were healthy. But these guys possessed a terribly disfiguring, no way you can hide it when your nose is not on your face or your fingers have fallen off kind of a disease that was thought in that day to be highly contagious. So here they come. <laughs> oh, sure, come on in. Have it, you know, have, you know pass me the potatoes. I mean, it's not going to happen. The chance is slim to none, but that's how desperate it is, and they know how desperate it is. Keep that in mind. They said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let's enter the city, the famine is in the city, we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now, come and let's go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, yeah, I know it's a big if, but, you know, who knows? We shall live, and if they kill us, well, then we shall but die, which is pretty much our trajectory anyway. So we ought to give it a shot. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. Here's where it gets interesting. It says, but when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, the word actually means look. So the narrator is coming to you and he's saying, listen, there's something I want you to see. This is really awesome. He's going, look and see. Behold, imagine this. Behold, he says, no one was there. Why? For the Lord. That's a key phrase in an apparent response probably to the repentance of the king, had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they panicked is the point. And they said to one another, Behold, the king of Egypt, or the king of Israel rather, is hired against us, the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt, to come against us. And so they, in a panic, fled away in the twilight and abandoned. They were so panicked, they abandoned their tents, they abandoned their horses. I mean, that's counterintuitive. They just literally stood and ran. And their donkeys and most importantly, all of their food. Leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And these four guys happen upon all of it. That's a good day. That's a sweet deal. I mean, that's like option four. God created that one. Never saw that one coming. Imagination not that big. But the Lord's is. But now notice what they do with it. Notice and look in the mirror a little bit. Sorry. But notice 
what they do. Notwithstanding the fact that their whole city is starving. Donkey's heads. Dove's dung. Eating kids? Yikes. We read this in verse 8. It says, and when these lepers came to the edge of the camp and went into a tent, they went into a tent and they ate and they drank. The idea is a picture of these guys pigging out, man. I mean, they are feasting hugely, but not just eating, but look at look what else. And they carried off silver and gold and clothing and they went and hid them. And then they came back and they entered another tent and they carried off things from it and they went and hid them. And then they came back and they entered another tent and they carried off things and they went and hid them. Do you get the idea? What are they doing? They're taking this great provision that, excuse me, but it came from God, did it not? It belonged to God, was to be used for the purposes of God, and there's no confusion in this story as to what that purpose was. Elisha has already told us. He said, look, about 24 hours from now, great salvation, great abundance. Everybody's going to be saved. Everybody's going to be fine. They're taking that And they're hiding it and hoarding it and keeping it all to themselves until we reach verse 9. Verse 9 is the pivotal verse. It's the most powerful and important verse, I think, in the whole story. It says this, verse 9, Then they said to one another, it's like all of a sudden the light went on. And they saw themselves, all this stuff, all of the people in their city, and like went, They got the big picture. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This is a day of good news. You know what the gospel, the word actually means? It means good news. It's a salvation day. This is a day of deliverance. If we are silent, he says, and and wait until the morning light. What is that a picture of, by the way? When the morning light comes, the sun rises. It's resurrection. Looks like it's coming out of the ground. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will surely overtake us. Now, therefore, come and let us go and tell the king's household and everyone else in the city is the idea. You know what makes that verse so powerful? What makes it so powerful is that before you read it, you think it. Like, I mean, if you're into the story and you're following along and you got the whole desperation thing and these guys go out and they come upon a provision that is like way more than they're ever going to be able to need. It's like four guys, all this. In light of what's happening in their city, watching them take it and hide it and hoard it and eat it and use it and keep it all to themselves and shh, don't tell anybody and don't use anything to help anyone else, you're like mortified. You look at it and go, really? How much of this do you need, guys? What about the people in the city? See, before you even read it, you think it. And it's powerful also because it's easy to connect the dots between them and us. Because just like them, everything that we have came from God, belongs to God, is to be used for the purposes of God. Hey, it's cool to have a feast. (laughs) I mean, you know, for our purposes too, but there's a bigger picture. And just like them, I struggle with wanting to keep it to me and feeling like I had better do that. Shh, don't tell anybody. That's the temptation. 
And just like them, we have needy people in our city. There are people in our city who are trading their lives away for the functional equivalent of donkey's heads and doves done, devouring themselves, devouring each other, devouring their kids. Maybe not completely, but at least in part for the lack of what God has entrusted to us materially and spiritually in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the question for us as individuals and families and as a church is if is whether or not we're going to have a verse 9 moment where all of a sudden we kind of go, wow, I never thought about that. Hey, you know what? We're not doing right. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. And this is a day of good news. It's a gospel day. And if we're silent and wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. We will surely and rightly be judged, they're saying. Now, therefore, come and let us go and tell the king's household, which is exactly what they do. And do you know what happened? Let me read it to you, verse 16. It says, the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. Translation, everybody ate. Everybody was saved. And so a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. But then we read about the captain guy. It says, now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And apparently he stood in a rather unfortunate place because it says, and the people trampled him in the gate so that he died as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, two seahs of barley shall be sold for a shekel and a seah of fine flour for a shekel about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, if the Lord himself should make a what? Because they exist. Windows in heaven. Could such a thing be? And Elisha had said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him. For the people trampled him in the gate and he died. How incredibly sad. Wow. Well, for the last four weeks, we've been talking about our time and talents and treasure And one of the things that we've all learned, I hope, if you've been hanging with us, is that, uh, well, it's not ours, that it came from God, it belongs to God, and is to be used in a way that honors the purposes of God, the salvation purposes of God, frankly. And that for all that God says about all of those things and everything else in our lives as well, here's what He says more than anything else. Most frequently, He says, you know what? Take what I've given you and be generous with it. Give it away as I direct, as moment by moment, you know, I lead you through this life. And so to that end, last week, together with a brochure on what we're calling the Rio House, which is the expression of our desire to create some housing for homeless single moms here in this community, we gave to you guys a commitment card. And across the top, it just says, leveraging my time, talent, and treasure. This is the part where, like, if you are here for the first time, you're looking at your husband or wife and going, oh, wow, (laughs) wrong week. Um, And here's what I would say to that. No, this is the perfect week for you to be here. 
Seriously, like if you're checking us out and you want to know what we're about, we're about seriously following Christ and sharing His gospel through deeds of mercy and through words. So it's great that you're here, but you don't need to fill out one of these, okay? But it deals here with our time, and it deals here with our talent, and it deals here with our treasure. And today, if you're ready at the end of our service, after it's over, and Matt will give us some instruction on how to do it, then we'd like for you to turn it in and to say, in a sense, okay, Lord, it's in the bag. Leverage it and use it for your kingdom. But we want to do that as an act of worship in response to the gospel. And the first Sunday of every month, we take communion together, generally speaking. And I thought, wow, well, how appropriate is that this day? So this morning, before we take up any commitment cards and close our service and all that stuff, we're going to come to the Lord's table together, this table of forgiveness, this table that is emblematic of the life and of the sufferings and of the death of Jesus Christ and even of His resurrection as it looks forward. It calls us to be reminded of who Jesus is and of all that He has accomplished for us and of all He evermore will yet accomplish for us forever and ever and ever as a result of His great sacrifice for us. The body or the bread of His body broken for us, the wine or in our case, the grape juice of His blood poured out for our sin. And so before you come to this table, talk to the Lord about your sin and confess it. Do that. And if there are things in your life that you're hanging on to that are sweeter than Him, talk to Him about that and let Him go. It's a table of forgiveness. It's a table for the forgiven. That means this is a family table. This is for those of us who have recognized our own inadequacies and sin and our inability to do anything about it and have seen Jesus for who He is, and have run to Him for forgiveness and and salvation and eternal life. If that's you, this table is for you today. Please come. If it's not, then just, you know, take that in. Meditate on that. Consider that offer. And lastly, it's a table of unity. It's not the table of Rio Vista Community Church. It's the table of the Lord. It is the place where, though we are very diverse, we are one in Him. So if you belong to Christ this morning, then by all means, come to this table. It is a sacrament. It means a sacred thing that Jesus has ordained that we regularly do. And it's where He does meet with us spiritually as we physically partake of these elements. As our elders come forward, I'm going to read this passage of Scripture, and then I'm going to pray for us. And I hope in an unhurried fashion that you will then meet with the Lord at His table. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23, he says, "'For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, "'This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.'" In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It looks forward. It looks forward to his return, which is a day of resurrection. It's a day of resurrection. Let me pray. 
Father, I thank you for the sacrifice of our Lord and of our Savior. I pray, God, in this moment that you would meet with us and help us to see that he's both. Lord, we thank you for the bread of the body that was broken and for the wine of the blood that was spilled, that we might be forgiven and made whole, washed of our sins and brought near unto you, given eternal life, and God given also a mission. And so I pray now, Lord, that you would forgive our sin and that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you in this table. I pray, Lord, that you would impress upon our hearts your messages, your thoughts, your conviction of sins we need to confess, things that we need to let go that we might truly cling to you. And I pray, Lord, that you would impress upon us the joy of knowing that you have made a provision for us that is greater than any of our sin and that your wisdom for our lives is beyond the limits of our imagination. So, Lord, open the windows of heaven for us in this time then and pour out the gift of your Spirit upon us. And with him, give us of your joy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.